Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, AP's May 23rd headline told readers, Supreme Court rules against inmates in right to counsel case. Those who pushed past the idea of being interested in inmates were favored with a lead that explained that, quote, the Supreme Court ruled along ideological lines Monday against two Arizona death row inmates who had argued that their lawyers did a poor job representing them in state court, close quote, for which many readers might be excused for saying essentially boo-hoo. People who the system has determined guilty are upset with that fact. Next story, please. Had AP headlined its story, Supreme Court rules evidence of innocence is not enough to avoid execution by the state, perhaps more readers might have read past the big letters. The truth is, while alternative and legal and human rights-oriented media are up in arms about the Supreme Court's ruling in Shin versus Martinez-Ramirez, corporate news media don't seem to think there's much to see there, which has everything to do with their relative disinterest in the human rights of humans at the wrong end of the criminal justice system and how willing they are to allow any degree of complexity to obscure important truths and to blur outrage. We'll talk about this new Supreme Court ruling about the so-called sanctity of life with Liliana Segura, reporter for The Intercept. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Country's centrist corporate media have decided what this year's primaries are mainly about. Donald Trump. In the wake of an attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election and continued efforts by the Republican Party to undermine democratic processes, corporate media remain fixated on Trump's role in the party, seeing the 2022 primaries as a series of referenda on Trump and his role as kingmaker. As Julie Holler writes for Affair.org, the focus on Trump obscures the even more important story that Trump represents, the GOP assault on democracy, which is being carried out only marginally less aggressively by many of those defeating Trump. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is a great example of this. After the state primaries, most corporate media made their lead story the losses of Trump-backed candidates, in particular Kemp and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who both played very public roles in refusing to bow to Trump's demand to find votes for him in Georgia in 2020. The Washington Post declared Kemp, Raffensperger win in blow to Trump and his false election claims. A New York Times subhead read, The victories in Georgia by Governor Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, handed the former president his biggest primary season setback so far. Reuters boiled it down with a takeaway subhead, Trump takes lumps. 
Well, these are stories that centrist media like to tell, that voters are sensibly rejecting extremists from their party, so moderate candidates are taking the right path. They tell this story again and again, including with Democrats, where they say the move to the center stories uh, encourage the primary to reject progressive candidates. The problem here is that Kemp and Raffensperger are not moderate except in comparison to Trump. So painting the story as one about Trump obscures the anti-democratic nature of those who defeated his hand-picked candidates. The Boston Globe demonstrated that you can explain this contradiction. They had a headline, May 24th, Kemp cruises to victory in Georgia, dealing blow to Trump, but not his voter fraud lies, in which the Globe's Jess Bidgood reported that, quote, even though he stood up to Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election, Kemp found other ways to assuage the GOP's base's unfounded doubts about the issue. He signed a voting bill that added new hurdles to absentee voting and handed some election oversight power to the Republican-controlled legislature. He spoke of election integrity everywhere he went, while Raffensperger leaned into the issue as well. Close quote. As Holler further noted, as Georgia's Secretary of State, Kemp for years vigorously promoted false election fraud stories, and he made Georgia a hotspot for undermining voting rights. He aggressively investigated groups that helped register voters of color, including a criminal investigation into Stacey Abrams' New Georgia project, which ultimately uncovered no wrongdoing. Kemp oversaw the rejection of tens of thousands of voter registrations on technicalities like missing accents or typos, and he improperly purged hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls prior to the 2018 election, disproportionately impacting voters of color. And then he refused to recuse himself from overseeing his own race for governor against Stacey Abrams. None of Kemp's history as anti-voting rights secretary of state was mentioned in any of the post-election coverage that fairs Julie Holler surveyed. Like Kemp, Raffensperger was an early supporter of Trump, who pushed election fraud stories and voter suppression tactics. Like Kemp, he launched voter fraud investigations into progressive voter registration groups, and he oversaw the purge of nearly 200,000 voters, mostly people of color, from the rolls before the 2020 election. During his re-election campaign, Raffensperger went on national television to push for a constitutional amendment prohibiting non-citizens from voting in any elections, as well as to praise photo ID requirements for voting and to oppose same-day voter registration. He's also called for an expansion of law enforcement presence at polling sites. In their obsession with Trump's win-loss record and their desperate search for moderate Republicans. Corporate journalists are whitewashing GOP candidates who paved the way for Trumpism and who ultimately seek the same ends. Minority rule, maybe by only slightly different means. So this is shallow, simplistic reporting that would serve the public poorly at any time. But at a moment where we are vigorously fighting to salvage a democratic project, this kind of reporting just serves as further indication that corporate media aren't 
the place for the kind of honest conversations that we need to have. You're listening to Counterspin. It's brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Innocence is not enough are words to chill your heart. That's the language Arizona state prosecutors used as a reason not to revisit the conviction of Barry Lee Jones after the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals determined that Jones had not received effective counsel and that if he had, his jury would likely not have convicted him of the murder of his girlfriend's four-year-old daughter. And the Supreme Court agreed this week. They voted 6-3 to three in a case called Shin versus Martinez-Ramirez that incarcerated people, including death row inmates like Jones, have no right to bring new evidence in their claims of ineffective lawyering in federal court, even if that evidence would show they'd committed no crime. Sonia Sotomayor called the ruling perverse and illogical. Experts like Christina Swarns, head of Innocence Project, noted that ineffective assistance of counsel is a leading cause of wrongful conviction. And it was lost on few that the same judges who insist that the sanctity of life demands that fetuses mean more than the people carrying them show no evidence of such interest here. Pretty much any deep account of this court ruling will cite the work of our guest. She's been reporting criminal justice and the death penalty for many years and was writing about Jones's case in particular back in 2017. Liliana Segura is a reporter at The Intercept. She joins us by phone from Nashville. Welcome back to Counterspin, Liliana Segura. Thank you so much for having me. Can I ask you to talk us through the key points of the case against Barry Lee Jones and and the issues with that case such that it wound up at the Supreme Court? Absolutely. So Barry Jones was convicted in 1995 of the rape and murder of his girlfriend's four-year-old daughter, Rachel Gray. Rachel was living with her siblings and their mom in Jones's trailer at a place called the Desert Vista Trailer Park in Tucson. This was a place where there was pretty pervasive poverty and drug use and a lot of folks sort of living on the margins. And what happened was that on the morning of May 2nd, 1994, Rachel was found unresponsive in her bed at Jones's home. And Jones and Rachel's mom rushed her to the hospital where she was declared dead on arrival. There were some disturbing signs of injury all over her body, but crucially, an autopsy, which was not performed until the following day, found that Rachel had died from an apparent blow to her abdomen that had torn part of her small intestine. And this led to a fatal injury called peritonitis. But also crucially, um, from the start, the investigating detective with the Pima County Sheriff's Department never looked into exactly how Rachel had sustained this injury. There was no real investigation of that key medical evidence. Instead, before they even knew how this little girl died, she turned her sights directly onto Barry Jones. So if you fast forward, you know, Jones was tried in 1995. There should have been a lot of evidence that his trial lawyers could have brought 
to cast doubt on his guilt in this case. There was really no physical evidence or very little physical evidence linking him to Rachel's injuries. And especially important was the fact that the case was really based on circumstantial evidence that a sort of very narrow time frame on the day before this little girl died where she had been spotted with Jones by people around the trailer park. And so the state presented a case in which her fatal injury had been inflicted within this very narrow time frame the day before she died. Now, Jones's trial attorneys should have investigated this. They should have talked to somebody who could consider the medical evidence to see if this held up. But instead, they never did that. And in fact, they they really failed to investigate the case at all. And instead, when it came time for them to present evidence, they put on a single witness at the guilt phase, and that was Jones's 12-year-old daughter, Brandy. That was their only witness. So Jones's jury finds him guilty, and a judge sentences him to death. And then there's an appeal, which... Again, there's another problem. That's part of the issue here is there's a couple of layers of ineffective lawyering right before it makes it up to the Supreme Court. That's exactly right. So so in our system, at least in theory, after you are convicted and certainly sentenced to death, you have the right to bring uh, forward an appeal. And crucially, you have a right to bring evidence that your trial attorneys failed you, that they provided ineffective assistance of counsel. This is a really important avenue for relief, especially for people on death row, because those are the kinds of, it's that kind of evidence that can lead to a conviction being overturned or somebody being exonerated. The problem is that there's absolutely no guarantee that your lawyer who handles that appeal is going to do what they need to do. And in Barry Jones's case, this is precisely what happened. He was represented at state post-conviction by a man who basically replicated the same mistakes his trial lawyers made. He did not investigate the medical evidence underpinning the state's case against Barry Jones. And what's so significant about that failure is that because of the way that our system is set up and these incredibly onerous procedural barriers that exist once a, a case is at that stage, Once a post-conviction attorney fails to bring forward that evidence of bad lawyering, you can never bring that evidence into federal court at a later stage. It's basically barred. And so that's what happens to Barry Jones until, and this is what leads us to the Supreme Court situation, in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a really important ruling in a different Arizona case, and this ruling was called Martinez versus Ryan. Mm -hmm. And in this ruling... In a seven to two decision, the court held that essentially, if you had a situation, as with Barry Jones' case, where your trial lawyers failed you, and then your state post-conviction lawyers also failed you, that you should actually have a shot to bring forward this claim, to bring forward a potentially evidence uh, to prove that you received ineffective assistance at trial. This was a really big deal when it came down in 2012, but it was meant to be a, a narrow remedy, a sort of safety valve, precisely to avoid miscarriages of justice and to ensure that people on death row and people incarcerated are able to vindicate their Sixth Amendment rights. And so this ruling was also really noteworthy because Chief Justice 
Roberts was in the majority. Mm-hmm. So was Sam Alito, it bears mentioning. So right. seven to two, this is 2012. And it's ultimately that decision that allows Barry Jones to bring forward all this evidence that should have been brought forward in 1995 at his trial. Thank you very much. What this latest, Shin versus Martinez Ramirez, seems to be gutting that Martinez ruling that that you're talking about. It's this weird thing, and folks can learn more about it. But as I understand it, writing for the majority, Clarence Thomas is saying, you can still bring your case about having ineffective counsel to federal court. You just can't introduce any new evidence, you know, which presumably would be the stuff, as you're just explaining, that your ineffective counsel left out. So this, I've heard this new ruling described as hollowing out Martinez without actually explicitly overturning it, but still taking all the meaning out of it. That's precisely right. And it really bears mentioning that, first of all, that Clarence Thomas was in the minority in Martinez. So, you know, right. he never agreed with this decision to begin with. But, you know, all of this sounds bad, and but it's sort of theoretical until you consider what this looked like, for example, in Barry Jones's case. What this means is that, as I said, in 2012, Barry Jones gets this sort of new door to be able to present his evidence. He finally is able to do that at an evidentiary hearing in federal court in 2017. I attended part of this hearing. This is the start of my reporting. And it's at that hearing that Barry Jones' lawyers present just an incredible wealth of evidence pointing to his innocence. But, you know, sort of technically what they needed to show was ineffective assistance of counsel. But it really just dismantled the entire case against Barry Jones. And it was stunning to watch the judge presiding over this. You know, at times he would question law enforcement who took the stand saying, well, didn't you consider this or why didn't you consider any other suspects? You know, the case really sort of fell apart. And in 2018, this federal judge overturned Barry Jones's conviction and said that, but for the failures of his defense attorneys, he would not have been convicted by a jury. And he ordered a new trial. And he said, essentially, the state of Arizona, you have to release or retry Barry Jones. And instead, the state of Arizona appealed and appealed and appealed, went to the Ninth Circuit, lost there went back to the Ninth Circuit, lost there again. But then you get the Supreme Court and they took their shot and they got lucky because now we have this conservative supermajority at the Supreme Court that was willing to to listen to their argument. And to say, as Thomas said, intervention, he describes, in other words, introducing the, the information that can prove or illustrate that this person may not have committed this crime or did not commit this crime, intervention is an affront to the state and its citizens who returned a verdict of guilt after considering the evidence before them. In other words, states' rights? Is that what we're talking about here? It's a process question, and it's and it's insulting for the federal court to intervene in this case? That seems to be the load-bearing idea in Thomas's opinion. Exactly. And this goes back to a long argument on the right about basically insisting that federal courts really have no business messing with the outcomes in state proceedings. And, you know, this long precedes Barry Jones's case, but it's really disturbing to see it in this way. It's also that particular line that you mentioned was especially ironic to me because as part of my reporting, I got in touch with some of the jurors involved in Barry Jones's case who expressed 
serious misgivings about this whole situation. And one in particular came to believe that Barry Jones is absolutely innocent. And she's she died in the past couple of years. But in our correspondence and in our, in our interview, I mean, she was just really uh, tormented by her role in helping send Barry Jones to die. So this idea that it's an affront to the citizens who return this verdict, it's, it's just so dishonest. Yeah. Well, I want to add something here because... Details matter very much, of course, and I think at the same time, they can also fill this sort of human need to find exceptions, to find a reason this would never happen to you, to find a way that this makes sense, even though it doesn't really make sense, because system failure, I think, is just hard for our brains to grasp, you know, and and so in some sense, details can can fight with principle, you know. Um, And with that in mind, Ramirez, there's a reason that this that Ramirez appears in this case name and the Ramirez case is different. It's not about innocence, but it's still about inadequate counsel. And it's still about federal involvement showing multiple failures that had happened at the state level. Can you just tell us quickly why the Ramirez case fits here? Yeah, so, and I'm glad you bring this up because this is a question of innocence. But Ramirez's case is a lot more difficult for a lot of people to express concern about, but it should be no less disturbing in terms of the implications of this ruling. You know, Ramirez, and, and I should say I have not reported on his case, but the basics are that, you know, he was convicted of murdering his girlfriend and her teenage daughter in 1989. He did not have an innocence claim, but he did have, I understand, significant mental impairments and a long history of childhood trauma abuse and neglect. All of these things are very common among people who end up on death row. And Ramirez's lead trial attorney had never handled a death penalty case, did not investigate any of this evidence. And as with Jones, his post-conviction lawyer essentially failed to do the same. And so it makes its way through the courts. But essentially what happens is that there's a finding in federal court that he's entitled to an evidentiary hearing in light of Martinez in order to bring forward this evidence, which this is the kind of evidence that can also help a person get off of death row because, you know, ostensibly, we're not supposed to execute people where there should have been a significant finding of childhood trauma, abuse, and neglect that could have come out at trial during the course of what's called mitigation. Essentially, if there had been evidence that jurors had heard that might have moved them to vote differently, that should have come out. Same thing with intellectual disabilities and and other kinds of mental problems. Again, because these are such common characteristics of death penalty cases, Ramirez in many ways represents a lot of the same stakes that men and women on death row have and that Martinez should have really allowed them to get back into court to present these findings. And instead, um, as with Jones, you know, the court said, you know what, none of that matters. And if the evidentiary hearing already happened, it's too bad. None of it counts. Ramirez's lawyer said that she wasn't prepared to handle the representation of someone as mentally disturbed as he was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think just as lay people, we think that should have meaning, you know. Um, It's hard not to read something into the careful carelessness of this ruling. You know, it looks like emphasis on procedure over people, but it... It seems really like emphasis on some people over others, you know, shoring up state power helps certain kinds of people. And there's, it's hard to avoid the idea that there's a sense that the people who are being harmed here are just of the harmable class, you know, and that there's some reason that we shouldn't care about them, you know. And I think for many people, thinking about people ends once you say the words death row, 
there's a sense that they've been through all the process, they've been found guilty, they must be guilty of something. And you've been working on that story and those people for a long time. I I just think that there can never be enough reporting on the realities of the death penalty and the people that are involved there, because I think for a lot of people, a lot of folks, it's a thought stopper. Thank you for saying that. And, and, you know, one thing that's sort of surreal about this whole situation, in most cases like this, by the time a case gets to the Supreme Court, a lot of these issues become abstractions. You know, it's very rare uh, that we know the story behind the people who appear in these court case names, you know. And and in Barry Jones's case, I never would have predicted that this would have ended up making it all the way to the Supreme Court. But it shows the difference that this kind of storytelling can make when you can say, this is a human being. And here are the people in his life who knew him and who remember this and who could have brought forward evidence and continue to speak out about the problems in this case. So I've been fortunate to be in a position to sort of correct parts of the record. Unfortunately, in terms of the Supreme Court and the federal court, that road has really come to an end for Barry Jones for the moment. Well, let me just ask you, finally, I've seen a few things go to Congress. What do you see as ways forward here, along with continued reporting, such as you're doing? what I'm figuring out now, you know, in terms of Congress, well, I don't have a whole lot of hope, but I will say that this has sparked uh, yet another round of discussion about this horrible uh, uh, 1990s era law called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which was essentially weaponized in this case to deny relief, as it's been denied to many, many people on death row. Um, This law is insidious. It's destructive. It uh, really should be repealed. That's something that is sort of an evergreen subject among people who know this, this issue. And more, you know, in terms of Barry Jones's case, my next steps are essentially to sort of see what remaining avenues there are for him to bring possibly an actual innocence claim in state court. Because otherwise, you know, we're talking at a time when Arizona has restarted executions after eight years. And there's a very real danger that Barry Jones could, in the not-too-distant future, end up with an execution date. So I think publicizing this case, um, especially at the local level in Pima County, is going to be very important. And finally, there is a Conviction and Sentencing Integrity Unit in Pima County that, at least in theory, should be looking at this case. And up until now, they haven't. Um, I'm really hoping to see if that's a possibility going forward, because they really should be looking at it. Well, thank you very much. We've been speaking with Liliana Segura. Find her work at theintercept.com on this case and many other issues. Liliana Segura, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much again. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR, based in New York. For more information about FAIR, you can check out our website, fair.org. That's also the place to find previous shows and transcripts of Counterspin. It's also the place to show support for the show if you are so inclined. Counterspin is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.